Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated, for you had compassion on me in my chains. And joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. So that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while. And he who is coming will come. And will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back. My soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition. But of those who believe. To the saving of the soul. Our passage begins with a warning. A profound warning against apostasy. And for those of you who don't know what that word means, it means intentional defection. Apostasy is a word that comes from a prefix, a, and pisteo, which means to trust or rely or to cling to. So when you use those two words together, it means to walk away from that which you used to trust in or rely on and cling to. It is the opposite of faith in Christ. And the warning is difficult to understand apart from the chapter's context and the whole book of Hebrews. In the chapter, the author has invited the reader to approach the throne of God in verses 19 through 22. Advance the people of God in verses 23 through 25. And now avoid the judgment of God in verses 26 through 31. We Christians are encouraged to stay strong and to persevere in verses 22 through 25. Our faith in Jesus is the only way to salvation, verses 26 through 39. So how do we avoid judgment? The Hebrew Christians were in grave danger. 
many were faced with the temptation of withdrawing from Christ, withdrawing from the gospel, returning to Judaism. And so the writer reminds the reader that God, under the economy of the Old Covenant, punished those who rejected the law of Moses in verses 26 through 28 and will punish those who reject the Lamb of God in verse 29. There are those who believe that somehow God will find it in his heart to forgive people apart from the gospel, apart from grace, apart from the cross of Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews leaves no room for doubt. God will punish those who reject Christ in verses 30 and 31. So in order to avoid the judgment of God, we believe in Jesus. We embrace the gospel. We receive the Son of God. We acknowledge the faithfulness of God in our lives in verses 32 through 39. And once again, the writer urges the reader to remember God's past faithfulness in times of suffering in verses 32 and 34, and his future faithfulness and his profound care in verses 35 through 39. So it begins with an exhortation, a warning against willful sin. In verse 26, it says, For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now this is the fourth of five warnings that will occur in the book of Hebrews. The first was, we ought to give heed. The second was, how shall we escape? You'll remember if we neglect so great a salvation. And then let us fear. But now it is a warning against willful or deliberate or what we might even call habitual sin. And when you read that passage, it can be very, very intimidating. Read it again. For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. One way of reading this might be, well, wait a minute. are, Are you saying that if I commit sins after I've received the knowledge of the truth, then there's no sacrifice for sin and therefore no forgiveness for sin and therefore no cleansing and no hope for sin? Because if that's what it means, let's just pause for a moment. How many of you are self-confessed, self-described Christians? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you as a self-confessed and a self-described Christian would say, hey, since I've become a Christian, I've blown it big time. Yeah, my hand, I'm going to put both of my hands up. And if I could put my legs up at the same time, I would try. But that means I would have to lay down. Now, if you stop and you think about it, if that's what that means, then we're all toast. But it also would mean that passages in the Bible, like 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, where it says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness has no meaning. So how do we understand what it is that we're reading? Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, Careless Christians start to drift through neglect 
Then they doubt the word of God. Then they grow dull to the word of God. The next step is deliberately sinning and despising their spiritual heritage. He writes, note the important facts about this particular sin. It's not one sin committed once. For if we sin willfully. Wearsby writes, sin willfully in verse 26, should read, willingly go on sinning. It's the same condition, or it's the same continuous tense that's used in 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, where the apostle John writes, whosoever continually and habitually sins is not born of God. So this passage is not dealing with the unpardonable sin. It's talking about an attitude toward the word that God calls willful rebellion. There were no sacrifices in the Old Testament for deliberate sin, for presumptuous sin. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 14. In Numbers chapter 15, verse 30. Sins of ignorance in Leviticus chapter 4. And of sudden passion were covered, but willful sins merited only punishment, unquote. And so part of the point of this passage is that you have to think about the context. The writer has spoken about those, remember, Immediately before, remember how we talked about do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some. For some of the Jewish Christians, they had forsaken friendship and fellowship and now they forsake the gospel and Christ. When we abandon the fellowship of the saints, we risk abandoning the Savior. And his sacrifice, when we step away from the saints and when we step away from the Savior, it's a very short step towards sin. The the passage isn't suggesting even for a moment that Christians don't sin. Christians can and do sin. Sin and disobedience sometimes brings God's discipline and loss of reward at the judgment seat of Christ. So does the writer of Hebrews warn believers that their sins will condemn them to hell? I don't think that that's what the passage is saying at all. I think what the passage is saying is that this is a warning to Hebrew Christians who willingly receive the knowledge and the truth about Jesus and then reject that truth and return to Judaism as a substitute for the gospel and as a substitute for Christ, these Hebrew Christians are toying with the idea that there is a salvation apart from Christ. There's a salvation apart from the gospel. There's a salvation apart from grace. And so because of the pain and because of the problems and because of the persecution, they're thinking, I can go back to Judaism. I can go back to all that it meant to be a Jew. So what exactly is this saying? Who or what is an apostate? This is the person who moves toward Christ. 
The apostate is the person who might have grown up in church. The apostate is the person who carries the Bible. The apostate might be a person who actually went to a Christian school or a college. The apostate might be a person who learned the language of Christianity and learned the culture of Christianity and learned the versions of Christianity, but he or she never come into a right relationship with God. They're never truly born again. This is the person who hears and understands the gospel. This is the person who's right on the verge of saving faith. But they never go through that door. They never experience what it means to be born again. They've never been cleansed or forgiven from their sin. They're never truly born again. What they do is they turn away. And they go back to whatever it was that they used to. And so you you might think about the context. The context, of course, is for the Hebrew who confesses Christ but really doesn't possess Christ. Does it have an application for someone here in the here and the now? It could very well apply to anyone who's grown up in a religious tradition or who's grown up with no religion whatsoever, materialism or rationalism or empiricism or skepticism, whatever religion you grew up in. And there's pain and there's sorrow and there's difficulty. And so you decide to go back, back to the life that you used to have. Christians who experience a a life-dominating sin are often tempted to walk away and, and, and to walk away from God and walk away from Christ and walk away from the gospel. A person who's experiencing a life-dominating sin, whether it's drugs or or alcohol or sexual promiscuity or whatever the life-dominating sin happens to be, and because it consumes your life and it consumes your thinking and it consumes your living, and your so some people think. You know what? I am consumed by a life-dominating sin. So God must not be real. Jesus must not be real. The gospel must not, must not be real. And so I'm going to forget about God, and I'm going to forget about Jesus, and I'm going to forget about the gospel, and I'm going to walk away. They don't believe in the presence of God's Holy Spirit. They don't believe in God's word. They don't believe that the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life is sufficient To do what is necessary. To not only be accepted by God. But to have the strength and the power to live in the very real world in which we live in. And so they. Walk away. From God. From Christ. And from the Bible. And for the writer of Hebrews. He doesn't give the Jewish Christian two choices. Hey, guess what? You can choose between Christ and you can choose between Judaism. That's not the choice that the writer of Hebrews gives. The choice that the writer of Hebrews gives is this is what your choices are. Christ or judgment. And it seems harsh. But look what it says in verse 27. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment And fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. 
What is left for the person who rejects Jesus, who rejects his sacrifice, who rejects the cross, who rejects grace? There's only the fearful expectation of judgment. The Christian Jew who abandons Jesus has no place to go. But it's also true of the Christian Gentile who abandons Jesus. For the Christian Gentile who says, I'm going to go back to Roman Catholicism. I'm going to go back to Mormonism. I'm going to go back to Jehovah Witness. I'm going to go back to atheism, skepticism. I'm going to go back to rationalism. I'm going to go back to whatever it is that I used to be involved in. Whether Whatever kind of life and whatever kind of lifestyle that you used to live. The expression fearful expectation can also be translated Frightful expectation. It means the judgment will happen. There's a reason why the writer is calling but a certain fearful expectation of judgment. The reason why it's frightening and fearful is because it is certain. The writer of Hebrews has made it abundantly clear. There is a God. Guess what? This real God is in control of a real universe. It's it's supposed to awaken the profound sense of eternal loss in hell. You know, I've said this over and over again. Spurgeon, when he was teaching his students about the subject of hell, he said, when you speak of heaven, your face should shine as if it were in heaven. And when you speak of hell, your regular face will do. (laughs) It's very, very difficult to talk about this difficult subject. Particularly if you grew up in a world of hell, fire, and brimstone. Particularly if you grew up in a world where almost every single message was about judgment and about hell. And this indignation which will devour the adversaries is clearly a picture of a consuming fire about to consume the adversaries of Christ. And what are the adversaries of Christ? Who and what are the enemies of Christ? Unbelief is an enemy. Sin is an enemy. Deception is an enemy. Satan is an enemy. But we could talk all day and all night about unbelief and sin and deception and Satan. We could talk all night about the lies that we tell ourselves or the excuses and the rationalizations. Remember, a rationalization is a plausible but untrue excuse of why we do what we do. We could talk about that all night long. But the writer of Hebrews says that there's a, this, the ex, fearful expectation of judgment, fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. The picture is a picture of the wrath of God consuming, devouring all unbelief, all sin, 
all deceit, all rationalizations. The world will go up in a fiery flame. There is a lake of fire where the false prophet and the devil will be thrown forever and ever. He or she may go back to Judaism, but Judaism won't provide salvation. You may go back to materialism, sensualism. You may go back to whatever it is that you used to be involved in. You can go back. The Gentile Christian can return to the world or some other religion. But the moment that you turn your back on Christ and the moment you turn your back on grace and the moment you turn your back on his love, you're following a path that's marked judgment. Whatever else the sign may say in your mind, every step away from God and every step away from Christ and every step away from grace and every step away from the gospel, you'll see the signposts up ahead. It'll be marked, judgment, judgment. It's coming, it's coming. It's just down the road. And look what it says. A willful rejection invites greater punishment from God. In verse 28, look what it says. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. What the writer of Hebrews, again, remember he's speaking to Jews who understand Judaism and Jewish culture and Jewish beliefs. He basically points out, look, let me give you an example. Anyone having set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. Certain crimes in the Old Testament invited the death penalty. You couldn't simply go to the tabernacle and receive absolution. You couldn't offer a goat. You couldn't offer a bull. You couldn't offer a ram. There were certain things that if you did them, you could die. The offender could be stoned to death by the people as long as the guilt was established by two or three witnesses. And the passage that basically talks about that is in Deuteronomy chapter 17. I don't expect you to turn there, but if you do want to, you can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Beginning in verse 2 through 7, this is what it says. If there is found among you with any, with, if there is found among you within any of your gates, which the Lord your God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant, who has gone and served other gods and worshiped them, either the sun or the moon, astrology, or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded. And it is told you, and you hear of it, and you shall inquire diligently. In other words, when it says inquire diligently, don't just simply hear, believe what you hear. Conduct a thorough investigation. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing, and you shall stone to death the man or the woman with stones. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people, so you shall put away the evil from among you. What were some of those sins? There were certain crimes that brought capital punishment. 
Rebellion against God was one of them. A refusal to worship God on God's terms was one of them. This was called the sin of presumption or the sin with a high hand, it's called in Numbers chapter 15, verses 30 through 31. This is the kind of sin where there was no sacrifice. There was no burnt offering. There was no grain offering. There was no peace offering. There was no sin offering. There was no trespass offering. Why? Because the offender or the perpetrator was a rebel against God's revelation. They had rejected God's law. Whatever this crime was, it would usually include the crime of rejecting the revelation that Moses had given concerning how a person can have a right relationship with God. This becomes so very, very important, particularly when you're talking with family and friends. When you say to them, Jesus is the way that God has ordained that you can have a right relationship with God. And their response is, well, that's your opinion. That's what you think. That's what you say. And you say, actually, no, it isn't my opinion. It's the revelation of God. Remember, the Bible says, God sent Jesus. God sent Jesus. God sent Jesus to be the satisfying solution to the problem of our sin. And so what is the argument that the author is making? In the Mosaic system, when a person offended God, when a perpetrator rebelled against God's revelation, they rejected God's law, they rejected his sacrificial system, they could be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so the writer in verse 29 says, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. The writer of Hebrews accuses the apostate, this is the Christ-hater, this is the Christ-rejecter, of three crimes. And see, you might think that this is harsh language, particularly for the person when you say to them, wouldn't you like to accept Christ as your Savior? And they say, no, thank you. Wouldn't you love to be saved? No. Wouldn't you love to have your sins forgiven? No. Not now. I don't want to be saved. I don't want to have Christ in my life. I don't want to experience his grace and his mercy. That's not what I want. That's not what I want. And the writer of Hebrews says, there are three crimes that they've committed. Crime number one, trampled the son of God underfoot. Crime number two, counted as common the blood of the covenant. Crime number three, Insulted the spirit of grace. So how are we to think about this? Do we think about it like the Taliban? Do we think about it like 
Islamist extremists who, if you commit crimes against God, we're going to wake you up in the middle of the night and we're going to confront you and cut your head off. That's not who we are. That's not what we do. You don't have to be the judge and you don't have to be the jury and you don't get to mete out punishment against people. So what do we think about what we're reading? How important is Christ's sacrifice for sin? How does God the Father see the sacrifice of God the Son applied by God the Spirit Again, Wiersbe says, quote, the father values his son. The son shed his blood. The spirit applies the merits of the cross to the believer. For us to sin willfully is to sin against the father and the son and the spirit. Think about the willful sin that's being described here. It isn't the willful sin of I'm going to have a beer or I'm going to have wine or I'm going to Smoke marijuana. You go, well, do you know all the things that you just said are legal? It's true. You're free to do whatever you want in Christ. But there are certain things that you know aren't right for you. The Bible says all things are lawful, but not all things are edifying. Not all things are encouraging. Some things are discouraging. So what is he talking about? For us to sin willfully here in the context with the Hebrew Christian is to willfully say the revelation that God has given to me in Christ, I don't care about it. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, I could care less. The ability to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit means nothing to me. So what does it mean to trample the Son of God underfoot? I think each and every one of you knows what it means. We have an expression in our own culture, in our own society, when you say, that person walked all over me. What, in fact, are you saying? Does it mean that they've rejected you? Maybe. Does it mean that they have contempt for you? Almost certainly. To walk all over someone means to embrace rejection and contempt. And so when this writer says, what does it mean to trample the Son of God underfoot? It means to reject Jesus. And it means to have contempt for the gospel. And number two, what does it mean to count as common or make common the blood of the covenant. I think all of you know what it means. This is the blood of Jesus. This is the sacrifice of Jesus. This is the once and for all sacrifice that the writer of Hebrews calls us to accept. And to call a common was the same as calling something unclean. For those of you familiar with the New Testament, you'll remember in Acts chapter 10 that there is an expression where Jesus, uh, where the writers talk about 
um, a, a sheet that comes down from heaven and there's all kinds of animals in this. And there's a voice from heaven that says, rise up and eat. And Peter, of course, says, I'm not going to eat any of this. I'm an observant Jew. Nothing unclean has ever touched my mouth. And the voice says, don't you call common or unclean what I've made clean. Counting Christ's blood as common meant to embrace the position and then defend the position that Jesus' blood, that Jesus' death was no better or worse than anybody else's death. For the person who comes to the conclusion, hey, you know what? Jesus died, so what? Abraham Lincoln died. John F. Kennedy died. A lot of people died. Martin Luther King died. Gandhi died. What makes Jesus any different? And the writer of Hebrews is saying, the blood of Jesus is efficacious. The sacrifice of Jesus is accepted by God. The sacrifice of Jesus cleanses us from sin. We use that term efficacious. It may be a big word to you, but it means efficacious is a word that means to have value or to make valuable. So the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus saves us. It is the means of the covenant. And remember what the covenant is. It's an agreement between God and human beings that God has established in Christ by his sacrifice. And what the Bible is basically saying is that God has in fact made a deal with human beings that they can experience his love and they can experience his grace and they can experience his forgiveness and they can experience hope in Christ and number three what does it mean to insult the spirit of grace The Spirit of Grace is one of the many names of the Holy Spirit. The Bible speaks of the role and the relationship of the Spirit throughout the ministry of Jesus. Jesus says, I'm going to go, but if I go, I'm going to send another comforter like myself who will be with you and who will be in you. The role of the Holy Spirit is to bring us to Christ. The role of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Jesus. The role of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin and to point people to Jesus and to testify to the truth that what the Bible says about Jesus is true. And that's why when the Holy Spirit shows up and the Holy Spirit begins to knock and the Holy Spirit knocks on the door of your heart and says, you know what? Everything that the Bible has said about Jesus is true. Do you realize that God really did send Jesus? Do you understand that he loves you and that he died for you? Do you understand that when the Bible speaks of his sacrificing being the satisfying solution to the problem of sin, it is true. And the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, of righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit brings us to Christ and then justifies us and then sanctifies The spirit is called the spirit of grace for good reason. 
It's because this is the grace of God at work in the salvation process. This is a grace that's prepared and accomplished. Homer Kent says, the action of the spirit in convicting and regenerating is thus a demonstration of God's grace to sinners in bringing them to salvation in Christ. It is the grace of God which allows the Holy Spirit to show up And issue the summons and the invitation. And so to insult the spirit of grace is when the spirit of grace shows up and begins to knock on the door of your heart. And you say, nobody's home. Go away. Come back later. Come back when I'm older. I'm young. I want to have some fun. I want to drug and I want to drink and I want to fornicate. Come back later. I'm not done yet. Still working on it. Bible says there'll come a time when the Holy Spirit doesn't show up and the Holy Spirit will stop knocking. I remember the story of a girl who received weak old flowers. Person knocked at the door. The, 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 the roses were right almost ready to wilt and fall off. Ladies, what do you say to a guy who gives you weak old flowers? Hey, you know what? They were like half off. Or I got these from a cemetery. (laughs) And the girl goes, thank you. But do you realize that that's exactly what the person who resists and rejects Christ is doing, who says, just wait, just wait till later. You know what? I'm not going to come in the flower of my youth and beauty and energy and attraction. That's what it means to insult the spirit of grace. You see, you insult the spirit of grace when the spirit of grace shows up and says, Jesus Christ is the Lord Love him, believe in him, receive him, and you say no. And so the question then becomes, can a blood-bought, born-again Christian do that? Can a blood-bought, born-again Christian trample the Son of God underfoot? Can they count as common the blood of the covenant? Can they insult the spirit of grace? And my answer is, of course not. That's what a Christian is. A Christian is a person who's accepted the invitation. This is A Christian is a person who believes the truth about the gospel. A Christian is a person who's been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. They've experienced life in cleansing. Once again, can true believers do this? Or is this a warning to the make-believer, to the poser, to the pretender? 
For the person who entertains the gospel message, but then rejects the gospel message and continues to reject the gospel message. Charlie Peacock used to sing a song. I almost threw it all away, traded truth for a lie, diamonds for clay. Oh, I almost threw it all away. And you see, the person who turns his or her back on Christ and walks back into a world a world that hates him and rejects him is playing a very dangerous game so in verse 40 or verse 30 look what the writer says for we know we know him who said vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord and again the lord will judge his people the writer's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 35 and 36. I want you to understand what this passage is saying. For we, who's we? It's the writer of Hebrews and the Jewish Christians. For we know, what do they know? They know the Old Testament. What do they know? They know in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 35 and 36, that, that That the Lord himself said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. The idea is that God is judging people who identify themselves as believers. People who identify themselves as a part of the covenant community. People who identify themselves... As people who should know and should embrace what God has revealed. He's talking to people about reaping what they've sowed. Particularly when they've been in rebellion and disobedience. As a matter of fact, when we read Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 35 where the quote is taken from. This is what it says. Vengeance is mine and recompense. And then it says this. Their foot shall slip in due time. Are you familiar with that passage? Their foot shall slip in due time. The most famous pastor of America preaching the most famous sermon that has ever been preached, chose that text as the subject of his sermon. The words, their foot shall slip in due time, speaks of the confidence, courage, that the unbeliever and the make-believer has because they think that they're sure-footed. They're confident in their unbelief. They're confident in their rebellion. They're confident in their disobedience. They're confident that God will make an exception in their case. They're confident that even though God judged the children of Israel in the wilderness, that even though God spoke and he says, what a person sows, that also that they will reap. That, That the reality is that God rewards the faithful and punishes the offender he says their foot shall slip 
in due time. And Jonathan Edwards used this as an opportunity to paint a picture of judgment. Of the consequences of rebellion and disobedience. And Jonathan Edwards began to speak of a lake which burns with fire and brimstone. And he spoke of a spider's web that was hung across the lake. And how people were hanging from a thread because the laps of the shores of the lake of fire were coming closer and closer. And according to historians people would begin to sob quietly and then they would begin to sob openly as people began to understand the reality of what it means to fall into the hands of the living God and face an eternal judgment. And he says, he says, for the day of their calamity is at hand and the things to come will hasten upon them. The Hebrew text reads, to me vengeance and recompense in the Septuagint it says in a day of vengeance I will recompense the idea being that one day God shows up for the person who said I didn't I didn't really believe the Bible I didn't really believe the gospel. I saw it as a way to restrict and restrain my behavior. I saw it as a bunch of lies. I used every single excuse I could possibly come up with. But the Lord says, there's going to come a day where I will make sure that the scales are balanced. Verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's quoting Psalm 135, verse 4. And what's the point? The point? It's a point you know well. No one will escape God's judgment. The people of God won't escape God's judgment. And that becomes part of the point too. For the person who says, I'm a Jew. I grew up a Jew. I, I, I was a Jewish person. Clearly there has to be some sort of dispensation for me. I was born a Christian, or I went to a Christian church, or I attended a Christian service, and I read a Christian book. What if a person identifies himself or herself as one of God's people? What if they say, I believe in God? And the writer in the New Testament, James, says, the devil believes in God and trembles. Simply acknowledging the existence of a God isn't loving that Lord and trusting that Lord and submitting to that Lord. The Lord will purge those who really don't belong to him. It's the Lord who will purge the hypocrite. It's the Lord who will purge the rebel. And if a Jewish Christian 
thought that he or she could escape the consequences of apostasy by simply returning to Judaism, a mere outward connection to Israel, and have no spiritual relationship with the God of Israel to turn from Christ and to turn from Christ's Messiah, God's Messiah, to hold on to Judaism was the same as turning from the living God, turning away from the living God. It is turning away from the living God because it is the living God Who's made the testimony. This is my son. In whom I am well pleased. So what does it mean to fall into the hands of the living God? It means to come in contact. With the ultimate authority. To fall into the hands of the living God. Means to come to a place. Of recognition where there's no more excuses, there's no more rationalizations, there's no more days, there's no more time to consider because you're standing before the true and the living God who has the ultimate ability and authority and power to do exactly what he wants to do. And no one will resist his authority. You know, there's a similar phrase in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 14, where David says, David is given an option to fall into the hands of the living God (laughs) or to fall into the hands of human beings. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 14, what do you suppose David chooses? Which place does David choose To trust. David chooses to trust the hand of God. Because David knows that in the end, in the end, in the end, in the end, God is kind and God is merciful and God is gracious and God is generous. He's full of compassion. He's full of love. But here the reference isn't to the believer. It's to the make-believer. It's to the apostate. It's to the person who secretly in their heart of hearts and their soul of souls is dark and distant and damned. Because they've never come to Christ. They've never loved him. They've never trusted him. And so those who truly love the Lord. And those who truly heed the warning. Are given an opportunity to strengthen their trust in Christ. Those who truly love the Lord will understand the warning and say, that's not who I am and that's not what I want to do. But those who don't truly love the Lord, they'll ignore the warning and they'll continue in their rebellion. And look what it says in verse 32, all the way to the end of the chapter, because it's a reminder to those who drift and wander from the faith in Christ. Look what it says 
but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. What will those who love the Lord do? The ones who love the Lord, the ones who love the Lord, they're going to remember. They're going to remember what happened to them, what did happen to them. They recognized that they were sinners. They, they recognized that they were in need of a Savior. They came to Christ. They trusted Christ. They believed Christ. And, and they'll remember their illumination. That's what it means, after you were illuminated. That word is the same word that's used in chapter 6, verse 4. It speaks of spiritual enlightenment. This is the enlightenment that follows regeneration or salvation. This is coming to Christ, accepting Christ. They endured the struggle. They endured the sufferings. These Hebrew Christians apparently suffered unbelievable, severe trial and persecution. And so here, the struggle is, is a contest. It's actually the word that's used here, contest. It's a metaphor for the trials and the sufferings. It's seen as fighting against them. The time of persecution, the time of antagonism, the time of affliction. It's a contest. And guess what? They've overcome the afflictions and the trials and the difficulties and the setbacks. In verse 33, Partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. So here's the idea. Accepting Jesus immediately laid on them the burden of attack. You mean the Bible teaches that once you become a Christian, you get attacked by Satan? Yeah. You get attacked by family and friends? Yeah. You get vilified in the culture? Yeah. You get people who, who think that you're weird? It doesn't count if you really are weird. <laughs> if you're really weird, that's on you. I'm talking about that kind of weirdness that comes because you've embraced Jesus. And so when he says partly while you were made a spectacle, the word spectacle is very interesting. It's the word in which we get our word theater. It seems to suggest a public display. Like what happened to Paul in Caesarea or what happened to Paul in Ephesus where he's marched out in front of a gigantic crowd. This is likely what happened to Paul. It means to be exposed to public disgrace. Think cake shop. Think floral shop. Think photography shop. Think about doing things and your stand for Jesus becomes public and everybody looks at you and says, tell me again who you are. I'm a Christian. Why is it that you're not doing this? Because I love the Lord and I can't in good conscience do that. Sometimes the attack came directly by identifying with Christ. Sometimes the attack came indirectly by identifying with those who were persecuted. And that's the meaning of the text. Sometimes silence means we don't have to suffer. Sometimes we are faced with a choice. I'm going to speak about Jesus and I'm going to speak for Jesus. I'm not going to speak about Jesus and I'm not going to speak for Jesus 
because if I speak for Jesus and if I speak about Jesus, it's going to probably cost me my family. It's going to probably cost me my job. It's going to probably cost me my life. On Easter Sunday, when we were here celebrating our resurrection service, a bunch of Islamists broke into a school in Kenya. They overturned the beds. They slapped everybody down. They said to them, you will recite the Muslim prayer. Are you a Muslim or are you a Christian? And the ones that could recite the Muslim prayer were allowed to go free. And the ones that could not recite the Muslim prayer were shot and then they were beheaded. Not 2,000 years ago. Not a thousand years ago. Not 500 years ago. This was on Sunday. In the 20th century, more Christians died for their faith than the entire 1st century and 2nd century and 3rd century and all the way to the first 19 centuries. And we're on the same track for the 21st century. Your brothers and sisters, your brothers and sisters in Egypt, in North Africa, in Kenya, Korea, India, China. And in verse 34, it says, for you had compassion on me in my chains. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. This is the first mention that the writer has of himself or herself. He basically or she basically says, you had compassion on me in my chains. The implication, it's telling us something about the people that he's writing to. Paul speaks of Onesiphorus who brought him assistance while Paul was in chains. It says, for both with the prisoners you sympathized and accepted with joy the seizure of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves have a greater and a more abiding possession, the implication is you felt bad for me and so you gave up things that you could probably be better off having in order to make sure that I was okay. In verse 34, it gives the reverse order. The suffering mentioned in verse 33, the mistreatment of those who are faithful in Christ, sympathy with Christian friends, personal suffering, seizure of personal property, but it becomes a picture of what they were up against. So what is the result of this persecution? What is the result of this suffering and trial? What is the result of this confiscation of your property? The writer of Hebrews? Joy. What? What? Abiding joy. Knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. How do you explain their attitude? How do you explain this? How do you explain a group of people who suffer so much and they face their sufferings with joy? And you come up with an explanation that doesn't include transformation of your heart. The passage gives us a hint 
of the life, the suffering, the reproach, the afflictions in verse 33, imprisonment and loss of possessions, verse 34. They are killed. Look ahead, chapter 12, verse 4. And that's why he says in verse 35, therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Here, when he says, therefore do not cast away your confidence, he's talking about your confident faith. He's talking about your faith. He's talking about the confident faith that comes as you are strengthened and reminded that you really do love Jesus. You are a true follower of Jesus. You love Jesus and you're a follower of Jesus. You expect to sometimes suffer and to suffer loss and to turn back to Judaism now would mean great loss. To turn back to materialism now great loss. To turn back to sensuality, perversion, to turn back to whatever it is that you think that you're going to get is going to mean loss. And loss of confidence would mean a loss of conviction. And a loss of conviction would mean a loss about the truth. And it would mean a loss about the truth about Jesus and the gospel. A loss of confidence would mean also a loss of boldness. It would mean a loss of the testimony to the persecutors. So that when the person shows up and says, why are you the way that you are? And you go, because I love Jesus and I'm committed to Christ. In verse 36, it says, For you have need of endurance so that you have done the will of God. You may receive the promise. You have need of endurance. The word here is hupomone. It's the endurance under pressure. It's the endurance under trial. It's the endurance under adverse circumstances. This isn't just, I'm just going to wait this out and hope for the best. No, this isn't a waiting it out and a hoping for the best. This is the reality that comes with being a real Christ follower. And he says, for yet a little while, he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Jesus is coming back. Trials are meant to produce endurance. The kind of endurance so that you would know the will of God and do the will of God. And then he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He borrows a phrase from Isaiah 26, 20. For yet a little while. In Isaiah, the question was over and over again, how long? Men and women who were enslaved in slavery, they would often cry out, How long? How long? How long will I be in bondage? How how long will the pain last? How long will the suffering last? How long will it last? And the writer says, It's just a little while. And he who is coming will come. But when you're in pain, it seems like a very long time. But now we understand what Paul meant when he said that this present suffering seems insignificant for the glory that awaits us. And there's a reason why here the writer says the just, that means those who are justified, will live by faith. What is faith? It's the exact opposite it's the exact opposite of the people who sin willfully 
faith in this context means the exact opposite of apostasy. It's the exact opposite of the person who says, I'm going back to where I came from. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. Who turns back? Who turns back? The people who turn back go back to perdition. The word perdition is a word that means a judgment, an everlasting judgment. But of those who believe, to the saving of the soul. The writer of Hebrews knows that the Hebrew Christians are a crossroad. There's going to be two kinds of people. Those who go back to an easy life of safety and security. And those who will go forward in Christ. Those who go back. Judgment. For those who go forward. Reward. There's so much more I want to say. But we're completely out of time. Heavenly Father. Lord. We know that faith is different from unbelief. We know that faith means trusting you and believing you. And Heavenly Father, we can't wait to come to the 11th chapter as we talk about the supremacy and the superiority of faith, of confident faith, of knowing you, of loving you and trusting you. And for the person who lives apart from faith, for the person who's empty, Lord, I pray that you would fill them up. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would knock, knock, knock on the door of their heart. Lord, instead of refusing to open the door, Lord, I pray that they would open the door. That they would say yes to Jesus. That they would say yes to the gospel. That they would say yes to the invitation. That if we would love you and trust you and believe in the sacrifice of Jesus, we could have eternal life. And if that's you, and if that's your prayer, I pray that you mean it with all of your heart and that the Holy Spirit confirms it inside of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.